0: Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher.
1: It's good to be back with you in our study of Daniel. I did want to mention before we begin that on our website, returntotheword.com, we have a chart that highlights some of the kings I'm going to be talking about today. Simply go to the Resources tab, and under Bible Charts, you'll see a chart listed, The Kings of Babylon, and you can download it from there. All right, let's get to it. Most of you have probably heard the expression, The Handwriting is on the Wall, and we're going to look at the event that is behind this expression. Bible's open to Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to bite off the entire chapter. Daniel 5, starting in verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in Daniel, who the king named Belshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, the king spoke, and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding, and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing, and I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear, or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written, Mina, Mina, Tekel, you This is the interpretation of each word. Mina, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple, and put a chain of gold around his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Medi received the kingdom, being about sixty-two years old. On March 19, 2003, an event transpired that closely parallels our text. On that day, Saddam Hussein and his sons, Udan Kusa, they invited a few of their close friends and advisors to have dinner with them in an exclusive restaurant in downtown Baghdad. They did this despite the ominous fact that an invasion was imminent from the U.S. forces that were massing across the border in Kuwait. But someone tipped off some of our special forces who were already in the area. President Bush ordered a strategic strike, and Saddam's dinner party came to an abrupt end when cruise missiles slammed into the building and completely demolished it. Now Saddam and his son survived this initial attack, but it was the beginning of the end for a brutal dictator who had ruled Iraq for 30 years. Saddam liked to compare himself to the great Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar who ruled the empire from 605 B.C. until he died in 562 B.C. Saddam actually spent millions of dollars attempting to rebuild the city of Babylon, which is located about 50 miles south of Baghdad along the Euphrates River. Babylon itself was the New York City of its day. It was the economic, cultural, and religious center for the world. And from a military point of view, Babylon was almost impossible to conquer. It is reported that the wall surrounding the city was 350 feet high and 87 feet wide and extended 35 feet underground to prevent anyone from digging underneath, tunneling underneath it. Then it is said to have had a moat between the outer wall and the inner wall. Hundreds of towers were placed on top of the wall to defend the city against an attack. The city of Babylon was roughly the size of 100 square miles. The Euphrates River flowed through the middle of the city, which provided all the fresh water they needed. Historians believed that the Babylonians had enough food stored up that they could have survived a 20-year siege. These were some of the reasons that King Belshazzar did not seem overly concerned about the threat posed by the siege of the Persian army just outside the city gates. Just like Saddam Hussein and his sons, Belshazzar was not going to let a little thing like the threat of war keep him from having a good time. So he hosted a banquet and invited 1,000 of the noblemen of Babylon to join him for a feast. Now It's possible that he wanted to reassure the nobility that despite the proximity of the enemy, there really wasn't anything to worry about. Now, these feasts, they were wild. They were unrestrained. Wine and women, you can fill in the gaps of what type event this was meant to be. Now, before we dig into our text, we need to really understand who Belshazzar was. At the top of the chart that I mentioned, you can see that Nebuchadnezzar reigned as a king for a period of 43 years. He fades from the scene at the end of Daniel 4. He died in 562 BC. His son, Evil merodach became king. Now, Evil merodach is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 25. If you're able, Turn there with me, 2 Kings 25, and we'll start in verse 27. And while you're turning there, remember who Jehoiakim was. Jehoiakim was the second to the last king of Judah. Chapter 24 of 2 Kings tells us that Jehoiakim was only 18 years old when he became a king. He wasn't a good king, and he only reigned for three months until Nebuchadnezzar came and took him back to Babylon and threw him in prison. So now in chapter 25, verse 27 of Second Kings, we read, Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that Evil merodach king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. King Jehoiakim of Judah was taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. He was in prison for 37 years. And when evil merodach became king after Nebuchadnezzar died, he let Jehoiakim out of prison but Evil Moradik only ruled for a period of two years because he was murdered by a man named Neraglysser. Again, you can find him in the middle column of the chart. Neraglysser was actually Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law. He was married to one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. Now, the brother-in-law, Neraglysser, he thought he could do a better job ruling, and because he was married to one of the king's daughters, he murdered Evil Moradik and took the throne for himself. Neraglycer was the king for a period of four years, and he died, and he was succeeded by his son, Labashi Marduk. Now Labashi himself, he was extremely young when he took the throne, and that didn't sit well with a lot of people. So he was beaten to death and only was king for a few months. He was murdered by people in the official government, including Nabonidus, who in turn became king himself quite the drama taking place behind the scenes, quite the bit of tension taking place. It's not too hard to imagine that Nabonidus thought that he could do a better job than the young kid as king. And he was married to one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, so Nabonidus took the throne in 556 BC. And he did a lot to restore some of the Babylonian kingdom that had fallen apart, that had deteriorated while the royal family was off busy killing one another. He spent a lot of his time in battle with other countries and overseeing the rebuilding of many of the temples for the false gods that they had. His mother was a high priestess of the moon god in the city of Haran. Now Nabonidus actually ruled for 17 years, but here's the key. He spent 10 of those 17 years away from Babylon. So he appointed his son, Belshazzar. He appointed him as second in command of the empire. Nabonidus was the king, but Belshazzar was his oldest son, and he appointed him as a co-regent, meaning that his son Belshazzar had the authority of the king, even though his father was still the king. It used to be that the critics said there was no proof that this man existed, that this book could not be trusted, because there was no record in Babylonian history of this man, Belshazzar, until 1854, when several Small cylinders were found in southern Iraq. They contained a prayer that was for the long life and the good health of Nabonidus and for his eldest son, Belshazzar. Never doubt the accuracy of God's word. At the point of our text, the glory days of Babylon have come and gone, Nebuchadnezzar's gone. About 25 years have gone by since chapter 4, and Daniel at this point is now over 80 years old and we are about to witness the transition to the second major dominant empire during the times of the Gentiles. So verse 1 starts out by referring to Belshazzar the king. Bel was one of the false gods that they had, and Shazar means protect the king. So his name literally means Bel, this false god, protect the king. With the city surrounded by the Persian army at the time of the banquet, I do not think that this false god was doing such a good job of protecting the king. With his father away, Belshazzar is referred to as the king, his father Nabonidus. At this point in time, he'd come back to Babylon, but had gone out with his army to fight the Medes and Persians and had already been defeated. Then King Nabonidus fled to a town named Borsippa with a few of his followers. He was followed there by the soldiers from the Persian army and he surrendered to Cyrus of Persia. Now Cyrus let Nabonidus live. He was allowed to live in a place called Carmania, with the agreement that he would never return to Babylon. So in your mind, picture what's taking place. The king's gone. Nabonidus had already been defeated and had surrendered. The rest of the Babylonian empire had already been taken over. All that remained of this large and powerful Babylonian empire was the city of Babylon, the capital city with its massive fortified walls. His son, Belshazzar, is in charge. The Persians have surrounded the capital city of the empire. They've surrounded Babylon. But Belshazzar was pretty confident. Remember, Babylon had those massive walls that were built up around it that no one could penetrate. And they had enough food and supply stored up within the city to sustain them for 20 years. The city of Babylon had not fallen to an invading army in 1,000 years. So even though the enemy is outside the city, is confident, and he has a large banquet to show his confidence. Notice the size of this event. He invited 1,000 of his nobles to this event. Archaeologists have found a room, a banquet hall, that is 55 feet wide and 169 feet long, that has plastered walls just as it mentions in our text. This could have been the hall that they used. We know that Babylon easily had the buildings to hold such a large feast, and we know from history that these type of feasts were common in the ancient world. One Persian king actually used to dine daily with 15,000 men. Over in the Assyrian Empire, when the capital city of Kala was dedicated in 879 BC, historians tell us that the king of Assyria had a feast with 69,574 guests. These huge feasts, they had a purpose. It kept the people happy with the king, and it showed everyone the power and strength of the king. As we look at verse 2, you need to keep in mind that back in chapter 1, back in our earlier studies, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar took some objects out of the temple of the Jews, and he brought them back to Babylon. Belshazzar orders that these be brought out, verse 2 says, so that the king and his lords, the lords were the noblemen that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Notice the depravity of the situation. The king not only wants to drink out of these things that belong to God, but he allows his nobles, his wives plural, so he's practicing polygamy, and his concubines as well. He allowed all these people to drink their wine from the vessels that were from the temple of God. In verse 2, the text refers to Nebuchadnezzar as the king's father. This is just saying his ancestor, or his grandfather. In the Hebrew and Chaldean languages, there is no word for grandfather. So if you were a great-grandfather or a grandfather, you'd be referred to as a father. But notice the audacity. Notice the arrogance. Verse 4 teaches us that all of this drinking of the wine was to praise the false gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This was Daniel's way of telling us that these gods that Belshazzar honored They were no gods at all. Drinking out of the vessels from the temple of the Jews was an obvious way of trying to say that these false gods that they worshipped were superior to the God of the Jews. Thousands of years later, not much has changed. Today, we continue to see the unredeemed intrude into the things of God and even attempt to redefine marriage, which is something that God created for His glory. It is a principle found throughout the Word of God, the lost defile what belongs to God. Then notice verse 5 again. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. All of a sudden, in verse 5, the fingers of a hand appears and begins writing behind the lampstand, and it was writing on the plaster wall. Verse 5 tells us this happened in the same hour, while they partied, While the booze flowed, and while they worshipped the false gods of Babylon, this is when the writing appeared. The lampstand was set up to illuminate that wall, to shine on that wall. But why? Because we know that the king had put on this wall inscriptions that declared his power as a king. Now there was a hand writing of his doom on this same wall. The word of God is very clear to us, that the king saw part of the hand that wrote, the music stopped. The dancing girls stood motionless. The waiter stood still as they all gazed at the words on the wall. Then take a look at verse 6. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him and his knees knocked against each other. Pride was replaced with fear, terror. His knees were shaking. One minute this pagan king was gloating, the next minute he was terrified. The king cried aloud for the wise men. Panic was setting in. He wanted to know what this meant. He tells them in verse 7, anyone that could interpret it would be the third ruler of the kingdom. He was second in command, and whoever could interpret it would be next in line. It was the highest position he could offer. Desperation has set in. The idea of clothing a person in purple, purple was the color of royalty. Wearing a purple robe would mean that the person had become royalty chain of gold around his neck. This would be a gift you'd give to someone that you're trying to honor. Focus in on verse 8. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. This is significant here. The wise men couldn't interpret what it meant, nor could they read the writing. The words were clear. They were written in Aramaic, which was a major known language in the empire, so they should have been able to read it. It was written in their language. It could have been that it was a dialect they did not know. Could have been that God kept these men from being able to read it. But there's another possibility. We're going to come back to this in a little bit. The wise men could not make any sense of this. Daniel has already shown us repeatedly how powerless these men were before God. Verse 9 is classic. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. Thousands of troops are outside the enemy gate. Belshazzar was not concerned, but this, this made him terrified. His face was pale. It was bad enough just seeing the hand appear and the writing on the wall. But now that the wise men were powerless to interpret the meaning, this made his fear rise to another level. Even his nobles were astonished. So the queen shows up in verse 10. In the banquet hall, everyone was scared. They're making a lot of noise, a lot of commotion. And notice verse 10 starts by saying, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen hears this commotion. She goes to the banquet hall, and she tells Belshazzar not to be alarmed. Now this queen, it couldn't have been Belshazzar's wife, because verses 2 and 3 tell us that his wives were already there. So it either had to be Belshazzar's mother or his grandmother. Which would make her Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Either way, she tells him about Daniel. Evidently, she knew a lot about him and knew that he served the God of the Jews. Apparently, Daniel wasn't working in the royal court anymore, probably because he was in his 80s, and probably because Belshazzar didn't seem like the type that wanted a Jewish man of faith around. King Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, He was a part of having the previous king assassinated, and it was the custom to replace all the wise men from the previous king, in case any of them were still loyal to the king that had just been killed, meaning here that Daniel may have not actually been in the royal court for some time. But we'll see in chapter 8 that Daniel still had a government post in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. So the king summons him and explains that he had heard that Daniel was brought by his father to Babylon, Father, once again, here referring to his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar explains the situation to Daniel and promises him the same reward that he had promised the others, if he could interpret what it meant. Out of desperation, Belshazzar is still promising gifts and rewards, even though we'll see in a few minutes, his life and the entire kingdom would be taken away from him that night. Minutes before this, Belshazzar was mocking the God of the Jews, and now he needs Daniel's help. Lost people do this when they get into trouble. They turn to people of faith to help them with their problems. Again, notice the wording of verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your reward to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel tells the king to keep his gifts. Give them to someone else. The kingdom was coming to an end and the rewards would be worthless. I love the history lesson that Daniel gives to the king starting in verse 18. Let's take the time to read it again. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Nebuchadnezzar was a much more powerful ruler than Belshazzar. But God humbled him, and Nebuchadnezzar came to recognize the sovereignty of the Hebrew God. Take a look at verse 22. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. There's a certain amount of responsibility that comes with the revelation of God. Having access to God's Word, growing up in a Christian home, living in a land where the Bible is freely taught, brings about a certain responsibility before God. Belshazzar should have known better, just like many people today should know better. Even though Belshazzar knew of Nebuchadnezzar's encounter with God, he still did not humble his heart before Yahweh. Notice verse 23, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have Praise the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. By praising the man-made gods while drinking from the vessels of Solomon's temple, it was again another direct challenge to God because he was exalting himself over the God of the Jews. And I am afraid that this is just what our Supreme Court in the United States has done by ruling that homosexuals can get married. They have challenged the God of heaven, and God will not be mocked. Daniel has no patience for the false Babylonian gods they do not see, hear, or know. But the very God, the God who holds your breath in his hand, the God who owns all your ways, you have not glorified. In verse 24, Daniel explains that the hand was sent from God, the same God that Belshazzar had mocked. Now, let me explain why I think the wise men might have had a tough time reading or understanding the words written on the wall. The words in our Bibles have been transliterated from Aramaic into English. But you need to keep in mind that the Aramaic writing that was used in that day probably didn't have any of the vowels left in the words. So all that would have appeared on the wall in English, would be something to the effect of MN M-N, M-N, T-K-L-P-H-R-S-N. That kind of gives you a better understanding of how it was possible that the wise men didn't understand what words were meant without the vowels and what was meant by these words. But Daniel understood. Daniel could interpret because I think he recognized his father's handwriting. There were only Three words written on the wall with the first word being repeated for emphasis. First word transliterated from the Aramaic to English reads, Mina. It was a noun referring to a weight of about 50 shekels or one and a quarter pounds. It comes from a word which means to number or to reckon. We see in the interpretation in verse 26 that this meant that God has numbered the days of his kingdom and was about to put it to an end. Next, some translations say, Tekel and some say shekel. Basically, a tekel refers to a shekel. Tekel is a noun referring to a shekel which weighed only two-fifths of an ounce. So, it weighed a very small amount, and it came from a word which means to weigh. Interpretation is found in verse 27, where we see it means that Belshazzar had been weighed on the scales and found deficient. This meant that his moral and spiritual character didn't measure up to the standard of God's righteousness, so he was rejected. The last word, eupharsin. Some translations say half minas or peris. Translating from Aramaic to English, some of these words can be rendered a couple of different ways, but they are all just ways of basically saying the same exact thing. This meant to break into two or to divide. The interpretation is found in verse 28, where Daniel tells Belshazzar that the kingdom had been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Verse 29 teaches us that the king did reward Daniel, but that reward was short-lived. Because verse 30 tells us that night Belshazzar was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. We'll talk more in our next study of Daniel about this man, Darius. But here's what happened. The city of Babylon was surrounded by the enemy troops. We know from the historians that the Babylonians up on the walls and in the towers that protected Babylon, they insulted and mocked the Persians down below. It's reported that one Babylonian guard even shouted, Why do you sit there, Persians? Why don't you go back to your homes? Till mules fall, you will not take our city. As I mentioned earlier, the city had large walls around it, protecting it, and it had 20 years of supplies stockpiled. It had not been conquered in 1,000 years, but the Persians found A weak point. With the Euphrates River running through the city from north to south, built this way so the people had enough water, even if they were under siege, the Babylonians built walls over the river on both the north end and the south end, so that way no one could invade. But what the Persian army did was put half their troops on the north end of town and half on the south. Then they dug a canal and they diverted the water from the river to a nearby lake. Water level dropped, and as the water left the river, the armies walked right down the riverbed and underneath the city walls. They did this at night, so nobody noticed the river drying up, and they walked in undetected. There was a small gate that hung down below the waterline, but because the water receded, they were able to go underneath. They took over the city without much of a fight at all because most of the city was sleeping, but the records do tell us that a festival was underway as the city fell, just as the Word of God describes. Verse 30 records that when Babylon fell, they killed Belshazzar. This actually happened on October 11th or 12th of 539 B.C. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah predicted the fall of Babylon. And not only did this fulfill the prediction by Daniel just moments before, but it fulfilled the second empire from the statue in the dream in chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar had all those years before. This ushered in the second empire of the times of the Gentiles. I'm reminded of the story of the woman who began to feel the Lord tugging at her heart. She did the only thing that she knew to do. She started attending church. This woman was fortunate. She actually attended a genuine assembly of believers where the gospel of Christ was clearly proclaimed. She responded to the gospel and accepted Christ as her Savior. Being a single lady, she got very involved with the church. She started teaching Sunday school, got involved with the choir. It was just another beautiful testimony of new life in Christ. But then there was a problem. You see, the pastor of this church was also single, and the two of them were drawn together by their love for the Lord, and with time they got engaged, and that is when the fireworks began. You see, this woman had a past before her new life in Christ. She had been involved in drugs, in drinking, and she had at one time been a prostitute. Neither one of them had ever been married. Her testimony over the years after accepting Christ was rock-solid. But problems came up because about half the church didn't think that a woman like that was suitable to be the pastor's wife. The church began to argue and fight, and they finally decided to call a meeting. As the arguments were made back and forth, the tension in the room increased. This woman was devastated and hurt as she sat there listening to people bring up all the things from her past. She began to cry, and at this the pastor stood up because he simply could not take the pain That this was causing the woman that he loved. Listen to what the pastor said. My fiance's past is not what is on trial here. What you are questioning is the ability of the blood of Jesus to wash away sin. Today, you have put the blood of Jesus on trial. So, does it wash away sin or not? The entire assembly grew silent and they began to weep as they realized that they were slandering the blood of Christ. This is the testimony of a proud church, a church that had failed to adequately wrestle with the doctrines of Scripture, of the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, and the deep need of the hour for men and women of faith to live in humility before Christ and men. I hate pride. I hate it in my own life, and I hate it in my brothers and sisters in Christ. Having come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior behind the bars of a jail cell 22 years ago, I can testify firsthand that within the church of Christ, the arrogance is sometimes revolting. It does make me wonder how many truly understand and believe the words of Scripture, the words of the gospel of Christ. It does make me wonder just why it is that we can see pride in a pagan king from Babylon, but we fail to see it in our own lives. Howard Hendricks, if you don't know the name, he was the popular seminary professor who served the Lord faithfully for many years. He used to keep a little black book wherever he went, and in it, he wrote the names of men, men that he had taught at seminary who had fallen out of the ministry, either because of an affair or some other significant sin. The list grew to well over a hundred names. He studied this list, trying to determine the common thread. Finally, he realized what it was. Each man that had fallen into sin when he had them in class and in the years he had known them since, had the same thing. Each man had a haughty spirit. Proverbs 16.18 Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. This was the sin of the lost Babylonian king. This is the sin that is dominating the landscape of the Western Church. And this is one of the sins that deeply hinders the work of Jesus Christ and damages the lives of believers. Let us not be so prideful. Let us not be so arrogant. Your sin is no better than mine. Our sin is no better than that of the lost. Do not make the mistake of questioning the ability of the blood of Christ to cleanse any man or woman from sin. And learn the lessons from those that have gone before that you cannot honor Christ if your focus is on bringing glory to yourself. Exalt Christ as we continue to live in His grace.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com.